G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. It is an opportunity to honour a New South Wales couple who've devoted their lives to helping those who are struggling with addictions. It's especially good to tell their story because they've both just been recognised with the Order of Australia medal, each of them, uh, this year in the Australia Day Awards. Uh, in the late 1970s, John Rifler and his wife Honey had an impression they knew was from God to provide a place for people to get free from addictions and to grow physically, mentally and spiritually. They spent the early years of their marriage in Western Australia working amongst Aboriginal people while Honey studied occupational therapy in preparation for what God had called them to do. With the provision of a 130-acre property, they started Sherwood Christian Rehab Centre with a converted bus and eventually converted railway carriages for accommodation. Well, these days, the Sherwood Cliffs Rehab provides drug and alcohol rehabilitation for single men and women, for single mothers, and they cater for married couples too. John Reifler is a founder of the Sherwood Cliffs Drug and Alcohol Rehab, and if you're wondering geographically, just between Grafton and Coffs Harbour in New South Wales. But I want to make a special welcome along to 2020 to you, John Reifler. Hey, John, are you with us? Yes, Neil. How are you, Neil? Oh, very oh, well. Great, great talking to you, John. Thank let you me very much for first... the invitation to share with you. Well, it's uh, absolutely my pleasure, and I think the listeners' uh, pleasure too. Let me just first of all start with a congratulations on the recognition and Order of Australia medal for you and your wife. Uh, did that come out of the blue? Uh, was that a surprise? How did you feel when your name appeared on the list? Oh, I have no idea. It was just it came out of the blue. It's the last thing that I've expected. You know, for for a government body to recognise some Christian work that's been done, I was blown away. We had no idea, but unless only just a few, you know, a few months, few months before, we had to fill in a whole lot of paperwork and and send our identity papers and my immigration papers and all that stuff. And then I thought they just said we were nominated, and we didn't know whether we were actually, you know, uh, accepted. And eventually we just got an email to say that, uh, yes, we will be the recipient of the um, Order of Australia Medal. Well, I think it's May, isn't it? You'll be donning your best suit and uh, shirt and tie, and uh, you and your wife, you'll be rolling up to Parliament House in Sydney to be able to receive those medals, and uh, no doubt that'll be a wonderful time of celebration. And what's good about, of course, receiving a recognition like that is it draws attention to the good work that you've been doing for decades. And this, as I mentioned, goes back to, uh, you know, as many, was it about 50 years even since you, you and Honey became involved in the sort of work you're doing now? Close to 50 years, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Four, 
We've been running this route for 42 years now. 42 years. Okay, well... It's our 42nd year now. Absolutely amazing. The good thing with the OAM is it gives me an opportunity to share the gospel with people that I normally don't have access to. And I think it's a great opportunity to give God the glory. Uh, We'll talk about more how your rehab centre works and when you say, and nice and early in our conversation, you know, giving glory to God is the way that he helps people get through their struggles with addiction because you have long believed that it's God who is able to set people free from their alcohol and drug addictions. Uh, All glory to him. Amen. So in those early days when you started to found the work that you do on this principle that God who is able, take us back to some of those thoughts. Well, maybe I should just share a bit of my story, how I actually got got to be here. And, and Good, yes. If that's all right with you. Yes. Uh, look, I was born in Switzerland in 1948. And I came from a good family, not a Christian family. Mum and Dad were both non-believers, although Dad went to church with us kids twice a year. And I said to him when I was 16, Dad, what have we come to church for? And he said, uh, we'll just put in an appearance to let him know we're still around. Uh-huh. And I walked away and I thought to myself, Dad, you're stupid. If there is a God, he'd know where we are. And if there isn't one, why do you bother? And so I was, you know, and then God, and then um, my father always told me, and he said, John, make no mistake, the church was invented, or God was invented by man to make money. And my dad had a very sad sort of uh, situation. He was a Protestant, and he married a Catholic girl, and none of his family came to the wedding because of the, in those early days, it was just wasn't on anyway. So I grew up in that sort of setup. When I was sixteen, seventeen, I, I quit school early, and then I went to work as a in spare parts with General Motors. Then I started to get into crime. I started drinking heavy. By the time I was seventeen, eighteen, I was committing crimes. I was breaking and entering, just for the adrenaline, not because I needed the stuff, but just. You know, the adrenaline rush, that's what I was after all the time. And then I went to the army. <clears throat> I finished my military service. And then after that, four or five of us, four, with four, four of my friends, we thought, let's make some money. And so it was not long after Ronald Biggs did a train robbery in England and he got $15 million or something dollar pound. And we thought, that's it, we'll do the same. So we held up the express train from... Uh, Germany to to Italy, <clears throat> and when the train stopped in the middle of the night, I held the torch up, a red torch on on the track, and we stopped the train. And the idea was we're going to jump the postal wagon, get the money, and run. But the other four blokes got cold feet. They jumped in the car and took off, and the train stopped and left me standing there on on the train tracks. And then big commotion came. Wanted to know what was wrong, so I bolted. And because I was on foot, I couldn't really go very far. So it was winter, it was snowing, half rain, half snow. It was sleet and mud everywhere. So the only thing I could do to get away is to climb a poplar tree on the the other side of the road. And I climbed up about 20 metres and I'm hanging up there for two, two and a half hours in the freezing cold while the police 
and everybody was down below looking for somebody. They had dogs there, and the dogs didn't pick up my scent because it was raining and sleeting, so I don't know what happened, but I hung up there till everything went quiet and the train went again, and, and, and while I was up on there, Neil, I just thought, well, John, if you keep this up, you're going to end up in jail. You're going to end up in jail. And then I thought, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So I came back down again about two and a half hours later, went home, basically frozen just about. And I was drunk again on the Friday night and on uh, on the Saturday night. And on Sunday morning, I got out, crawled out of bed, and I watched telly. And I saw a movie, a documentary of Australia from the Australian Department of Immigration looking for migrants. And it's Australia, the land of opportunity, the land flowing with milk and honey. And the statistics came through that there were three women per man, per male, three females per male. That was a big attraction to you. you. Oh, I'm needed over there. (laughs) So on Monday, (laughs) I rang the the Australian consulate in in Geneva and I said, look, what's the go? I want to go to, to Australia. But my friend who we worked with three years before, and General Motors, he had gone to Australia, and he used to write to me, and he said, come over, come over, and I said, no, 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 too much fun, too much fun. And then finally I asked for the paperwork to be sent, and my dad said, yeah, you're going away again, blah, 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 and he just he just lost it. Anyway, so I thought, well, Dad, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to start a new life. So the long story shorter here, you arrived on Australian shores and you were looking to start a new life, turn over a new leaf. Uh, You already had a developing problem with alcohol. Uh, I definitely did. Take us to a point where you'd made a decision that this was not the direction that you would go, that you'd get free from that, and, uh, and where you would make a decision to actually devote your life to an opposite direction. See, I didn't really know what I wanted. I just knew that if I keep going what I was doing, I'm going to be doomed. And so I thought, I'll go to Australia, I'll start a new life, I'll start new, and I'll forget all my old mates and everything. But the problem was I arrived in, I, I left Switzerland at Christmas 68 and I arrived late January 69 on, on a boat. But I was drunk for 32 days on the boat. And then I had a fight with a, with a bloke on the boat with another migrant over at the bar. And I picked up one of those square heavy duty ashtrays and I tried to throw it at him and he ducked. And it hit the bar, the mirrors that behind the bar where all the bottles are hanging. Yeah. So it hit that and everything came down. The whole bar, all the mirrors on the wall and all the bottles and everything came crashing down. That was middle of the night. Next morning, the immigration officer came and he said, John, you are no longer free to run around in Australia. You will be going to a immigration or what they call now a detention centre. And so he said, you will have to go to Bonagilla. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I couldn't speak English properly. And then when the boat arrived in Sydney, we disembarked and he kept a watch on me all the time. He sort of basically, you know, he tailed me for days till we got to Sydney. And then he sat up on the railing and he said, there were six or seven buses down below, Greyhound buses, who would take some people to go to the 
to uh, detention centres and others were free. And he said, bus number two, young man. And I walked down the gangplank and then my friend came up the gangplank and he looked at me and I said, don't talk to me, keep going, turn around, get the car, park it in front of bus number two and don't talk to me, don't say anything, I'm being, I'm, I'm being watched. And then I looked back up to the immigration officer and I waved to him and I assured him and I said, bus number, tw- number two, number two. He said, yes, number two, and he had a big smile on his face. So my friend then parked the car in front of the bus on the other side where he couldn't be seen from the boat and I put me, me gear in there and off we went. And I just never went to the detention centre. And three years later, actually, every year we used to have, as migrants, we used to have a fill-in, uh, like a postcard at the post office to tell the, the government where we were. I never did anything for three years. And then on the third year, I thought, I better do this. I better do the right thing. And I just said, I'm working. I'm going good. Thank you very much. And I never heard from them since until I got the OAM. Okay. Well, you're telling <laughs> no, an interesting backstory here, and, uh, and I hope there's I hope there's not a whole bunch of uh, authority people listening in because uh, because uh, some of them might have second thoughts about your OAM. But uh, <laughs> well, I heard on the radio somebody was stripped of the OAM yesterday. Some politician. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's there's talk about that for one particular uh, outspoken woman. But and it's interesting that you've uh, felt that you can share that story publicly with us this morning because uh, it's it's an interesting one. I didn't know our conversation would go this far, uh, this direction. I didn't know that you had been uh, trying to emulate the great train robbery of Ronald Biggs and uh, that you'd actually escaped from that and escaped from uh, detention uh, because uh, here you are and telling a story of a wonderful work that you have begun and uh, has been going on now for, for many decades. We'll get to that. So for listeners well, who have been okay, hoping to I'll get some... I'll tell you the rest of the story, what happened after that. Be really so, quick because we're about to go to an ad break. But uh, just quickly, what is the... Just yep, go with the, the rest of that. Okay, so we went... The four or four of us lived in one house in Leichhardt. And I arrived on Sunday and I started work at Muir's Motors on Wednesday. And then we used to go swimming so they, they go, the boys took me to Maroubra. We swimming, and I had no idea. I couldn't swim properly, and I got pulled out by an undertow. Mm. And the houses and the cars got smaller and smaller and smaller. I was exhausted. I couldn't get back to, to the shore. And then a guy came past on a boogie board, and in those days the boogie boards had, had a rubber handle at the back. So I grabbed one of his handles, and I, I sort of indicated I need help. And he tried to bring me back to shore, but we both got pulled out. And the next thing is, he kicked me in the head. I just saw this great big foot come for me. And then I lost consciousness after that. Well, you're still alive. Something must have happened. We might yes. catch the rest of that in just a few moments. We're going to have a very quick break. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Well, unexpectedly, the most fascinating story that you're likely to hear today, the story of John Reifler, and we're talking today about his recognition, uh, an Order of Australia medal, 
the founder of Sherwood Cliffs Drug and Alcohol Rehab. But if you've just joined us, uh, we've heard that John was trying to emulate the great train robber Ronnie Biggs and planned to rob a train in Switzerland, (laughs) got off and escaped in that sense, came to Australia and spent all of the time on the boat drunk. Uh, In Australia, had committed a number of... uh, Uh, I guess you'd call them offences, and was in trouble with the Immigration Department, actually escaped from immigration detention, and uh, we didn't know that we were going to get to that part. Uh, You were washed out to sea, John, when you were swimming at Maroubra in Sydney, and uh, the last thing you remembered in that point was a foot coming and blacking out out in the ocean. You'd better fill us in because the story is so intriguing. What happened? How did you get rescued? Well, the guy kicked me off the boogie board in the face and then I lost consciousness. And then I just saw myself in a big air bubble in the water. Everything was dead dead quiet and still. And then I heard a voice. A deep voice spoke to me in my own language, called my name and said, John, you are going to a lost eternity. And then my whole life of all the crime I've committed and all the bad stuff came past me like a video or a DVD. How's this, eh? Before even, before DVDs, before YouTube, my life went past me. And then I woke up on the beach and they're pumping me out and trying to resuscitate me. And then I heard the word hospital and I said, no, no, no hospital, no hospital. And then my friends took me home and I heard this voice that just said, God, 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 all the time. And I said to my friend, I think I've got brain damage from lack of oxygen. And he said, yeah, you could be right. You could be right. He said, I heard about that. And then the next day I went to him and I said to him again, listen, I don't think I've got brain damage. He said, why is that? And I said, well, if I'd have brain damage, I wouldn't be able to figure out that I haven't got it. And he said, oh, whatever. And then I said to him, I said, listen, Walter, what is life all about? Tell me, I want some answers. I'm, you know, drinking, women, nightclubs, working, drinking, nightclubs. And I said, there's got to be more to it. And he said, why don't you just pray? And I just swore at him and I said, pray? Forget it. I said, that's for old women and kids. Next I asked him again, I said, have you got something a bit more concrete than just this, this, this God thing? And he said, read the Bible. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to read the Bible. I said, it, it, it's, it's a man-made thing. Don't worry about it. Saturday night came. I, was, I weighed 47 kilos. I had a bleeding stomach ulcer, and I was that crook. I was vomiting blood. And I couldn't go. And I said, look, I can't go. We used to go to King's Cross every weekend and during the week. And I said, I can't go. I'll stay home. I'm sick. And while I was home... That night, or Saturday night, I just thought about it, thought about it, and then I thought, oh, blow this. So I pulled the Bible out of my briefcase. Now, the strange part was my mum forced me to take a Bible. She was a non-believer. She was, she was just a, a non-believing Catholic, I suppose, and she forced me to take a Bible. She said, take it, it's a good luck charm. You know, it'll protect you from evil. And I said, oh, what a whole lot of rot, you know. And I took it. My mum also packed for me long underpants, long singlets. And I said, I'm going to Australia, mum. So I didn't want to upset her anymore because I knew I wasn't going to come and back in a hurry. 
So I just laid there and I read and I opened the Bible, New Testament. I don't know what I read. In the first few pages of the Bible, I just opened it and I read and I understood for the first time who Jesus was, what he came to do, that he died for me and forgave me and he loved me. And I just, he went like a light in my head. I totally understood that. Boom. And I had no church connections. Nothing. Anyway, so I just said, I better pray. I thought to myself, I better pray. And I didn't know how to pray. So I remembered five different prayers, prayer positions that I'd seen in movies. Hands folded, uh, kneeling, standing on the bed, prostrate on the floor. And I thought, well, I'll pray. And I didn't know which prayer would work. So I prayed all five, five times the same thing in different positions. And what I prayed, Neil, I just said, God, if you're there, you can, ha- you can have me. I'm no good. I'm a failure. I'm worthless. I'm no good to nobody. I'm a total failure. If you can use me, if you can use me, I'll give you my life. I'll serve you for the rest of my life. I will ask, not ask any questions. I will do whatever you tell me. Amen. That's it. And guess well, what happened? What happened? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Just what I expected. Nothing. Uh, and then I started thinking, there is no God. I know. It was all BS, you know. And I thought, no, no, no. My dad was right after all. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm feeling so sorry for myself lying on the bed and, and <clears throat> feeling sick. And I thought, well, I knew it. I knew it. There is no God. And then all of a sudden, it happened. About 20 minutes later, after I'm feeling sorry for myself, a hot flame started on my feet. About four inches wide. I couldn't see the flame, but a really hot flame, like an oxy-torch, moved up my legs, my body, past my head. And then I collapsed on the bed. I was already on the bed, but I sort of collapsed on the bed. And Neil, I cried and cried and cried. I don't know, 10 minutes or two hours, I have no recollection. And then I went to sleep. Next morning, I woke up. I have a totally new person. I had never touched alcohol since. I've never committed a crime. I've never touched a woman that wasn't mine. And I actually had a born-again experience that, that night, I suppose. I had no church connections in Sydney either. I had not had nothing to do with Christians, really. And that was it. Well, John, I just changed. We're God going to continue our conversation after Vision National News. I know there'll be listeners hanging on every word. John, as we pick up from where we were at just before the news, you described an encounter a physical encounter that you had and you knew from that point you were born again and you put away those things of your past, crime and women and alcohol. Uh, You put those things aside and you started a brand new life. Uh, Take us into this encounter and the way that God sets people free because uh, no doubt people listening to us today thinking, I've got an addiction. It might be drugs, might be alcohol. How do I get free from that too? And uh, there are real ramifications. There are really beautiful things that happen when you do get free from those things. Uh, Take us to that encounter that you had and what it was like 
moving on from your past into a new life, having been born again? Thank you, Neil. Well, I suppose the operative word in, in, in for anyone to be set free and for me to be set free when I, when I was in, in those early years, the secret word is surrender. Surrender. Surrender, surrender, surrender. Don't come to God with an agenda. He has one for you. God has a plan. God has a plan for each one of us. And all we've got to do is to fit in with his and not getting him to fit in with ours. And so I've, look, I've immensely enjoyed my Christian life. I've had more fun now than I've had all in my days, in my days of crime and everything else and my drinking. And I've seen so many people's lives changed. And the thing that still excites me today is when I meet somebody who has a need and God meets that need, not, not, not people. And in- I am so grateful that I was able to actually experience that to pass it on to other people. You know what? And uh, my wife might have even mentioned that, but I've been engaged three times, never had any trouble getting a woman, but I couldn't keep them. And then I become a Christian, and then I said, God, you're my manager now. And I asked him, and I said, look, if the woman I'm with now, this part Chinese girl, uh, if that's not the woman you want me to share my life with, I'll give you three weeks to bust it. And I was so happy, Neil. I went to the pastor and I said, guess what? I told God, three weeks, you know. And he said, you're crazy. And I said, I've been to your church for 12 months and you told me God created the world in seven days. And, and I said, I just I want a woman. I don't want another world. Three weeks is plenty enough. And then he just said, oh, I give up. And then on the last day of the three, three weeks, I became a member of the Methodist Church in Kosovo. They asked me to come forward, shared communion with me alone, and I went to sit down. And this young woman, I was just about to sit down in the only vacant seat in the church, and this young woman gets up, shakes my hand, and says, praise the Lord. And I shook her hands, and I looked her up and down, and I said, praise the Lord. And to cut a long story short, that was on Sunday. On Wednesday, I asked her to marry me, and on Thursday, she said yes. We'd never seen each other before, and four months later we got married in, in 1972 on the 27th of February. Next week I'll be married 48 years. We have six children and 20 grandchildren. <laughs> and, you know, if you want to live life to the fullest, give it to God. Surrender is a key word, isn't it? As you say, surrender, surrender, surrender. Don't come with your own agenda, just surrender. Now, when we talk about the miraculous and when we look at your life and hear your story, we can recognize a miracle occurring in the way that you were set free from those things of the past and decided that you could surrender to God and that he could direct your future. And when we talk about the miracle that happened to you, you have seen countless miracles happening to other people who've gone through your drug and alcohol rehab. In fact, you've got a book uh, that you've written called Countless uh, that's full of everybody else's stories, and I know, no doubt yours as well. It is, it is. It's, it's, my wife wrote a book called Countless a couple of years ago with all the different miracles in it, because they were so many, they were countless. And we've published two other books. One was uh, Hidden Not Hiding, and the other one was Faith Works. And 
So that's, you know, our whole story is in that as well. Okay, but with really our motto here is to refresh the weary, refocus the lost, and rebuild the broken. That is our, that is our aim. And if you need refreshing, if you need refocusing, if you need to be rebuilt, well, you can always give us a call. <laughs> we'll give some contact details very shortly. If we talk about refocusing a life, rebuilding what has been broken, uh, already sharing your story about that experience with God and to be able to surrender to him and his purpose for you, Let's talk about some of the practical things. No doubt there'll be some listening to our conversation today battling with their own alcohol issues or drug issues or they've got a husband or a wife or they've got a child uh, who's dealing with these sorts of things. How can we understand first steps that you might do to actually get on a right track, to get a refocusing of your life, to get to rebuild what has been broken? So you've got uh, this new birth experience, you've got a surrender to God. Where do we go in starting to build a life? Is everyone's story different? Is there some things in common that we ought to understand? Everybody's is different. Every story, and on, on the television you get some uh, six million stories, you know, and, and everyone has a different story, but the circumstances are always mostly very similar. And I think the first step to recovery is to own it. To own it. The biggest danger is the blame shifting. They did this to me, they did that to me, but until we own it, you know, you can't give something away that you don't own. And if you give something away that you don't own, it's called stealing. And God is only interested in actually receiving something that we own. And once we learn to own our own failures, our own mistakes, and I think I was very fortunate in that sense. I had no church connection. I had no help. The reason I was able to surrender... Uh, basically unlimited is because I was so desperate I had nowhere else to turn I was on my own and that helped me a lot and then sometimes you know we have families and people that want to help us and support us and quite often it has the opposite effect because they become enablers and I sometimes say you know withdraw everything from the person that has a need they need to hit rock bottom. And if you haven't hit rock bottom, it is very difficult to do something and to surrender. So that, that's been my experience, and that's what I can, you know, I can tell you. Just turn, talk to somebody. People who have hit rock bottom, uh, they're owning it, and they're saying, I need to break free from the surrounds where I am right now, the peers that I continually am with and if we're talking about alcohol uh, all those friends that are calling you to say come on out for a drink uh, you've got to get free from that routine of your life and get a different routine in place that I imagine is where the real benefit of what you have with your rehab center is that people can detach from what's happening and holding them back and giving them an opportunity to have a little bit of clear air to be able to rebuild. Is that what happens in your rehabilitation centre? Yes, look, it's a, simp it's a simple thing. 
the greater will always replace the lesser. You only have to talk to a woman and ask her, you want a $20 or a $50 note? The greater will always replace the lesser. And when you make God the greater, the rest will go. It goes and fades into insignificance. It is a battle. It's a battle of our wills because we don't want to be controlled. But the problem is when we take drugs and alcohol, we are controlled. And so we just need to shift and allow God to control us, and then the outcome will be definitely positive. And I always say, and don't forget that, listeners, is the greater always replaces the lesser. Sometimes people tend to doubt the idea that what God is promising is greater than what they are gripped by. Uh, but your story demonstrates so powerfully that the greater replaces the lesser. When people come to you, how long do they spend in rehab? Do you sort of book in and uh, all of a sudden you're coming into a motel situation and somebody comes and waits on you hand and foot? Uh, I know that that's not the way that you work, but uh, give us some idea of what happens when someone comes to your rehab centre here, John, and uh, the sort of routines that you create in people where they're actually looking for uh, the answers that you've been talking about today and they're getting their life back on track and beginning to rebuild. What sort of routines do people have when they come and stay with you? So the routine is, usually we get phone calls from family, husbands, wives. Oh, my husband, my wife's got a drinking problem, got a drug problem. And <clears throat> can, you, can you book him in? And I say, no. You get the person to ring us themselves and quite often they don't ring. But when they do ring, they will do a phone assessment, then we'll send them an application form, they fill it in, and when we receive the application form, then they join the waiting list. And when we have a vacancy, we give them a ring, and then they come in. So when they come in, there's no drugs, no alcohol, no cigarettes, uh, basically no, no media for them to just give a break from everything. And we have a routine in the morning and there's two guys share a room together for safety reasons and so that they can actually have a buddy system so we always put somebody new in with somebody who's been here for a while so they can encourage each other and they have the guys have breakfast on their own and then we have morning tea lunch afternoon tea oh not afternoon tea anymore but uh, dinner And then on Wednesday nights we have a Bible study, but every morning we have a devotion from 9 to 10 where we have a Bible reading, we listen to music, we sing, and we have discussion times where we can air up, air air the things and and talk about it. We also have counselling sessions individually so that we can actually get down to the nitty-gritties and to help these folk to just to refocus, you know, because the focus is always on themselves, you know, me, me, poor me. They always worry about the three most important people in life, me, myself and I, you know, and if you focus focus on that, you're not going to get anywhere. Okay, so it's a tough love that you are involved in because you're not making it easy for people to get there. In fact, you've got to be pretty serious about overcoming your addiction problem to get into the rehab in the first place. That's not just a place where you can go to, uh, you know, have a little bit of respite. And it's a working farm. So you've got 
daily routines and people become involved in the work of the farm. You've got an orchard, you've got a dairy, you've got a large vegetable garden, you've got chickens and you've got cattle. Uh, so in some sense, uh, you have to be prepared to roll your sleeves up and uh, get your hands dirty in the routines you put people through. Absolutely. And we have a wood workshop, we have a mechanical workshop. We train the guys for future employment. We try to give them some skills. We try to find out what are they good at, what would you like to do. And then our minimum stay for, for, the, for the single guys is a minimum stay six months. And most married couples actually stay stay at least 12 months. And we have a private school on the property run by a Christian community school from Coffs Harbour. We're a third campus and we have our own teacher. And at the moment there's only three students in our school, but sometimes we have six, eight. And so when people come with a drug and alcohol problem, they bring their children, then they can actually go to school as well on the property. And so that it, it complements the whole rehabilitation because when the kids are upset because the parents are, not, are fighting or whatever, and then the te- we can then tell the teacher, look, just uh, go eat your little, little Joey today because mum and dad had a fight and all this. So we can support the whole thing. What about the situation, John? And I know that people going through uh, addiction challenges, uh, trying to get free from drugs, trying to get free from alcohol, uh, oftentimes there are relapses. And yes, with all good intentions and uh, got through all the process and finally they accepted me down there at Sherwood and uh, and all of a sudden uh, I don't want this anymore. I, 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 you know, I want to go back to my old lifestyle. Uh, drugs and alcohol is calling me afresh. How do you deal with relapses when people are battling addictions? Uh, look, we get... Quite often, sometimes, we get, get a relapse and guys come and say, oh, it's too hard. And then they go, and then a few months later, they come back again. We just had a guy that arrived yesterday who was here a couple of years ago, or three years ago, I think, and he's just slowly slipped back again. Wasn't watching what he was doing, you know, slowly slipped, drifted back into it, and so he's come back before it gets too bad to refocus again. And but most of the guys who come here, they they leave after six, twelve months. They join a church. They find employment. And I suppose we used to have like nine out of ten guys would find employment and uh, just live normal life again. We had a guy here that was two years ago. He's a truckie. And he met a girl at our church, and he just got married. We had a wedding here on, uh, at Sherwood on the 1st of January at 6 a.m., first day of the year, 6 o'clock in the morning. Oh, I said, what do you want to get married at 6 a.m.? I said, I'm still in bed. Anyway, so we had a wedding at 6 a.m., and they're happily married. Both of them have come to the Lord, and their life has taken on a totally different direction. Well, I running out of time, I just want to spend a few moments for listeners who are thinking, how do I get in touch with Sherwood Cliffs? And, of course, we're talking about drug and alcohol rehabilitation. We are talking about your 
organization, your uh, ministry there that happens between Grafton and Coffs Harbour. And so it may be more for people who are in New South Wales, although do you get people calling from all over the country? I mean, uh, you know, for listeners who are listening to us on the other side of the country today, uh, they're thinking maybe I can break free from uh, what I'm doing in Western Australia or South Australia or the Northern Territory. I'll come and live in New South Wales for a little while. Uh, is it when people contact you? It's I'll give you the website. It's SherwoodCliffs.com.au. SherwoodCliffs.com.au. And uh, so Cliffs and it'll come up. Yeah. So if you Google Sherwood Cliffs, it'll come up. Now I know that you have the working farm, uh, but it's also a ministry. In fact. We didn't even get into this, but the idea of living by faith is what you've set out to do. You knew you were called by God to do what you were doing. Yeah. Uh, financial provision, I know it's not even your policy to ever talk about that, so let me just encourage listeners uh, that it's well, a ministry can you can you. support. We are, we are a registered charity. We don't take government money. We're totally faith-based. We trust in God, whatever we need, and... That's how it is, and we've been operating that for 41 years, and it has worked. God speaks to people to support us, and we don't, we don't solicit for funds or do anything like that. I know it's a bit unusual, but that's just how God told us to do it, and that's what we're still doing. All right. Let me mention the book, too. It's called Countless, and uh, countless as in countless miracles seen along the journey. It's been our wonderful opportunity today to honour this man, John Reifler, and his wife, Honey, and they've been honoured with us the Order of Australia medals, and uh, they're going to have that medal presentation coming up in May, and I hope, uh, given your confessions on the radio today, that does nothing affects all of that, John, but uh, just a such a refreshing and wonderful story that you've got to tell. I'm just humbled to have had you on the radio this morning, and you certainly deserve those accolations, those accolades, as uh, as you've been helping so many uh, through four decades, getting through their addictions to alcohol and drugs. John Reifler, Sherwood Cliffs Drug and Rehab, uh, dr- Drug and Alcohol Rehab, SherwoodCliffs.com.au. John, thanks so much for sharing your story with us today on 2020. No worries, Neil. Thank you very much and God bless you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.